I know you've heard a lot of Florida histories with me in the past few months. Cities come and go throughout our stories, whether they were trampled by interstates or swept away by tourism or abandoned in favor of urban sprawl. Many, however, especially in the central parts of our state, were met with the same fate. Many were left in shambles after the great freezes of 1894 and 1895. These freezes destroyed acre upon acre of citrus crop, leaving the rich without income and the workers without a place to go. One such city was Conant in the northern parts of present-day Lake County. It was named for Major Sherman Conant, who invested in Henry Plant's Florida Southern Railroad. Conant, the town, had a reputation for being quite pretentious, where only the richest citizens lived and the citrus farm workers were not welcome. Conant, like many other cities in the area, fell to the freezes, and the more rural residents were not sad to see it go. Conant faded into obscurity. But you know that. You've heard that story. So I will tell you a different story. You've never heard of this city. It's not in Florida. In fact, it's not even on this side of the country. It's all the way west, in Arizona, in Maricopa County. Maricopa County is in the southern half of Arizona and is actually in the county where Phoenix is situated. The Salt River runs prominently here, named for the huge deposits of salt that the river encounters as it rambles along through the desert. If you were a kid growing up in Arizona, there is a concept taught in history classes known as the five C's, as in the letter C. They represent the five prominent economic pillars for the state. They are copper, cattle, cotton, citrus, and climate. Florida shares a few of these. Cotton, however, is not one of them. The Salt River and the Salt River Valley are where many cotton fields existed back around the turn of the century when cotton was Arizona's cash crop. One man named F.G. Hardwick came down to the Salt River Valley and, with the help of the river, started growing cotton. He was the first to successfully grow this cotton in the desert back in 1885 and was rewarded a whopping $500 for his efforts. In 1912, the Santa Ana Register, a newspaper based out of Santa Ana, California, advertised a town out in the desert named Marinette. They proclaim that an ample agricultural spot was awaiting you out in Marinette, adding, quote, that the chances of making money there are the best in the West, end quote. You can grow oranges, grapefruits, apricots, olives, and alfalfa. The Theodore Roosevelt Dam had just been built, and Marinette was downstream of this newly regulated waterway. In 1920, the city was purchased by the Southwest Cotton Company, which had opened several other communities in the area with the same purpose. Cotton. And lots of it. They were successful for decades, and these little towns kept the prominent cotton industry alive. Until, as with all things, someone else started growing cotton. Texas and Louisiana were growing massive quantities of the crop themselves, and by the 1950s, Arizona was no longer the vital source of cotton that it used to be. The agriculture towns that the Southwest Cotton Company had created out in the Salt River Valley dropped off the map one by one, and in 1957, Marinette joined those ranks. The best of the West was dead. Then came Del Webb. He was a businessman and a developer, and his impact on the West Coast of America was massive. One of his first developments was actually an internment camp for Japanese Americans during the Second World War. He built a casino for a mob boss in Las Vegas in the late 40s and then turned his career toward building the suburbs of the early 50s in Arizona. 
Webb was all over the place for two very busy decades until he invested in a small town called San Manuel. San Manuel was very similar to Marinette in that it was built specifically to gather a very specific type of crop. For Marinette, it was cotton, but for San Manuel, it was copper. Webb was tasked with developing this town, which he handled with ease. He whipped up a town in the middle of the desert for a copper company, and it still exists to this day. It is about 150 miles away from the town that Del Webb is famous for, however, and the town that launched his name into the annals of history. That town is Sun City. Built on top of the former town of Marinette, where cotton had grown in the desert for the first time, Del Webb built a retirement community for the rich generation that was entering the 55-plus community. They needed a place to retire to. Sun City featured, quote, a recreation center, golf course, swimming pool, and shopping center, all finished before the first houses were sold, end quote. It opened on January 1st, 1960, and literally ushered in a new decade. More of these Sun City developments started sprouting up nationwide now, with two more popping up in California and even one on the west coast of Florida in 1962, though it did not prosper like the one in Arizona. Over the shell of Marinette, Del Webb created an empire, one specifically designed for the aging community, so they could have a luxury home just for themselves, filled with recreation and peace and quiet. And it was the same in Florida when, in the mid-20th century, inspired by Del Webb's blossoming new enterprise, a group of Florida landowners sought to create their own Sun City, but without Del Webb. Where would they even begin? Where was there loads and loads of land ready to be bought up and resold in order to create a thriving new retirement community? Well, in the same fields where frost exploded citrus trees apart and the Europeans left their acres behind. It is over Conant, the most pretentious town of old Florida, where this duo of developers made something even bigger than the first Sun City. Florida's favorite retirement community, the land of a thousand golf courses. The Villages. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. This week, The Villages, the homes of the past that made it possible, and the communities that were not so lucky. The first time I visited The Villages was at 3 in the morning a few months ago. I was driving home from the Panhandle. I needed gas and a coffee immediately. It was a Sunday night, except Monday morning, so traffic on the road was even more sparse than normal. For parts of the trek, we were the only car on the road. The same was true when I arrived at the villages as my little car zoomed down an exit in search of a Wawa or anything. The signs indicated I was indeed at the villages, but everything around me was just open land and little small cul-de-sacs. This was supposed to be this mammoth of a city, larger than the island of Manhattan, but I was met with the familiar sights of Lake County. Where was I right now? I eventually found that Wawa and headed home, determined to return. When I did, it was a sunny Monday morning a few weeks ago, and I realized why I hadn't seen the villages properly. The areas around the villages are disparate, hangers-on to a community that has become like a living organism. There are unusual abandoned strip malls with colorful murals clearly meant to attract tourists, but the villages, though it is not the type of place where Floridians typically originate, it is not a place for visitors. It is a place where people come to stay. 
Once you're across the line, once you've passed one of those iconic signs, you know exactly where you are. And the sunshine starts to feel a little crisper. The Villages is an age-restricted community, meaning that nearly all of the residents are over the age of 55. If you are younger than that, there are certain limits of time you are allowed to stay in, and once you have passed that limit, you'll have to return another time. It is so massive that it is in parts of three different counties, Lake, Marion, and Sumter. It has over 30 different golf courses in which the aging residents have free access to so long as they live in the Villages. There are theaters with near constant seasons, there are town squares with social events, there are recreational and dining opportunities every few blocks. As I drove down the streets of the villages, it almost felt like it was another world. Not that any of it was alien to me per se, but rather it's all just so cultivated. The town centers are lined with storefronts and restaurants and boutiques. The neighborhoods themselves were gated and there was never a house just on the main thoroughfare. Speaking of the main thoroughfares, I drove around the villages for a full hour and by the time I decided to head out, I turned a corner and found another road that I hadn't even explored. The community really is giant. More giant than you can really comprehend. And there are golf carts everywhere. This is likely my favorite part of the villages. On many roads, there are additional sets of lanes with their own borders, sort of like a second smaller road next to the main road, specifically meant for golf carts. Where those weren't, there was a bike lane that was meant for bikes and golf carts. And I saw dozens upon dozens of them with happy residents driving by, with special decorations all over the carts to denote personality or sports team preferences or functions. I wasn't sure where they were all going, though I did notice many golf carts parked outside of the 2Js in the town center. I myself craved a black and white cookie, but I decided not to stop in. I drove back out to the main road and went towards Tavares, pondering what little pockets of the villages I had yet to lay eyes on. There really is so much to see. The size of the land is why, and the size of the land is no accident. It was the result of Florida's third major land boom in years following the Second World War. We had already experienced two land booms up to this moment. The first, in the 1890s, was due to the effects of the Seminole Wars, where the American government successfully removed the native Floridians and promised land to war veterans, so long as they built homesteads and developed towns around them. Land was bought up, and quickly. The whole thing collapsed in 1893, with a historical event known as the Panic of 1893. You see, land had been bought by people who didn't really have the money to buy it, and as costs went further and further up, there was nowhere left to go. Banks started losing that money quickly, and those holding land in Florida lost their investments. The trees froze and exploded, and everyone fled to the cities. This is where we all were in the 1920s when yet another land boom came. This time, as the post-World War Americans sought to flourish in their riches, buyers would again spend more money than they had on Florida property that they had no idea what to do with. This resulted in even more coastal cities such as Miami Beach and Tampa Bay. This land boom also led to the removal of the state income tax, which lasts to this day. But the cost of land started to fluctuate, and soon, those who wanted to live in these developed areas could not afford to live in these developed areas, and they never returned. Coupled with sudden freezes and devastating hurricanes, by 1925, Florida preceded the American Great Depression by having a depression of its own. 
it would take us years to recover. But we did. And in the 1960s, a modernizing world brought out grand new ideas. People had already fallen for the same land boom situation twice already. How, if I had land, could I get investors to return? Harold Schwartz had a plan. From a little spot up in Michigan, Harold bought acres of land in the middle of nowhere Florida, south of the Ocala National Forest. He started selling the land via mail. It was going fairly well until the federal government banned mail order land purchases. That's a brick wall for Harold's new business. So after only selling a little of this land, Harold was out of luck. He had already had a rough few years going through a divorce and his wife remarrying. Harold needed a win, but he was stuck with huge quantities of empty land in the Florida wilderness. Florida presented a solution like it always does. For the decades leading up to this moment, Florida had been inundated with tourists traveling to the state via the ever-growing amount of interstate highways. The train business had fallen to the wayside and tourists would come with their cars attached with livable little trailers. They could drop these portable homes off in rentable plots and make a home for themselves for as long as they could pay until they hitched it back up and went back north. The idea of buying land in Florida was not an issue. You could just rent it and bring your own bed and call it a day. What if, however, you could own that land? You didn't have to build a huge house or rent it for any amount of time. It was yours. And you could bring those movable houses in, drop them off in your new land, and call it home. With that in mind, Harold opened Orange Blossom Gardens. He took out ads across the country advertising this purchasable land stating, quote, you do not rent this lot, you own it outright, end quote. Looking back on this now, 40, 50 years later, it's such a brilliant plan that you can see exactly why it worked. It was post-World War II, and aging communities of yesteryear needed a place that felt theirs. If you were in your 60s, in the early 1970s, you had seen the end of a war, the Great Depression, another war, the economic boom of the 50s, and the huge social shift of the 1960s. You would want to have a place that felt yours as society moved on. Orange Blossom Gardens provided that. It wasn't a smash hit though. Del Webb's Sun City out in Arizona was a huge success, but Orange Blossom Gardens had sold only 400 or so units in a decade. It just wasn't working. He was building model homes now and was selling single and double wide homes for new residents. He was selling it correctly, he knew how it worked, but it was quiet out in Lake County, especially in comparison. Harold bought out his business partner in 1983 after what some reports call a falling out. His residence had doubled, but it just wasn't right. His successes had only been moderate since he split with his wife. Along with the split was a distance between Harold and his son, Gary, who had taken his stepfather's last name. He wasn't Gary Schwartz. He was Gary Morse. Harold tried to make this town work, but it never fully boomed the way he might have dreamed. He was ready to retire and live in Orange Blossom Gardens. He called on his son, Morse, to come down and take over the community. Maybe they could live there together. Morse saw what his father had created, but saw also what was missing. It was cheap land with simple homes, but it was just that right now. It needed to take a page from Sun City's book if it was going to stay afloat. Remember, from the day Sun City opened, it had a golf course and a pool and a community center and numerous activities for the residents. In this way, Sun City was a community. For now, Orange Blossom Gardens was just land. It needed that thing. 
It needed stuff to do, beautiful places to go, ways to be with other people, and a sense that everyone was here together. If all those things could accumulate, they could have a successful brand new community with a brand new name, the Villages. Within a few years, there were no more mobile homes in the Villages. Model homes and cultivated communities started sprouting up, looking like an ever-growing tree from above. The cul-de-sacs and the tile roofs go on as far as the eye can see. The grass is green, the water is blue. The Villages, an area that had once been mobile homes on tiny plots, had become a paradise for the elderly population fortunate enough to afford it. But mobile home parks never went away. Not all of them got swallowed up by community planning and turned into elderly meccas. Nationwide, nearly 20 million people still live in mobile homes, and more than half of these homes are in the South. Two decades ago, Florida was ranked number one for mobile home population. It was at the same time as our population boom kicked into high gear, and 11.6% of Florida residents lived in mobile homes. None of this is to say that it is inherently bad to be living in mobile homes. The stigmas around such a thing are antiquated and ignorant. But the concern when it comes to mobile homes is rather that the residents are often taken advantage of. We currently have the most mobile homes of any state in the country, 828,000. Almost all of them, 600,000 to be exact, are older models and are not built to withstand hurricanes. Only half of the people who have mobile homes have insurance. Many have faced increased rent because they own their trailer, but not the land. Developers want that land so they can build more properties on the same spot. With rent increasing, many can't afford to remain there, so they vanish and lose their security. Even getting a new mobile home that is prepared to take on hurricanes is nigh impossible as demand is so high. The whole situation is a slog built on greed and misfortune and developers who scramble to gobble up any land that they could get their hands on, no matter the human expense. Many of the 55-plus residents nationwide, but especially in our state, live in mobile homes. Though they may not have access to unlimited golfing for life, they have communities of their own, often settled near beautiful beaches or bustling towns. I tell you this not to shame the residents of the villages, nor to send pity to the mobile home communities in our state. Rather, I say this to remind you of how easy it can be to lump the elderly into one thing. I've been reading books articles, humor, and more about Florida for a decade. I know that we are a joke state to so many, so easy to mock because of our tourists and our weird crime stories and our frankly amazing blend of culture, but think of the most consistent joke you hear in the media. The old people live here. Your great aunt moved to Boca Raton. Your dentist retired and moved to the villages. Your grandparents play cards in the community center of their mobile home park. Writers and late-night comedians will laugh all day long about the old folks no matter their state of life, whether they're in the mega-rich Miami area cities, the vibrant suburbs of the villages, or the quiet streets of a coastal mobile home park. The only uniting factor is they like to laugh at old people. And that's where I get mad. Because there are a lot of things to laugh at or criticize. I frankly find it hilarious that there is a separate golf cart lane through the primary roads of the villages. It is so funny. And there are issues such as the unacknowledged amount of sinkholes popping up in parts of the villages, or the fact that their community newspaper has a blatant conservative bias and frankly ignores half the story. These are completely legitimate criticisms of a community, any community, and ones that could be attributed to any town in the entire country. 
So why do people publish book after book set in the villages, not talking about that, but focusing on the sole joke being that old folks are weird or say weird things or don't understand everything exactly? Why do I have to read essay after essay of humorists and analysts finding it so strange that old folks establish these spots where they're all in one place so they can spend their twilight years in our sunlight? I'll tell you why. Because, frankly, for many, it's easier to laugh at the aging population than it is to consider that, in many cases, our society will scorn their issues. And they have issues like healthcare or homelessness. It's easier to laugh. So here's my pitch. Why don't we, for a while, not take the easy route? The Villages is not a perfect community. No one would proclaim that. Its size and sheer amount of golf courses make it a little absurd, sure. Its residents do not. So yeah, we have a lot of retirees in Florida. Let's try owning it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I seriously hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving it a review or sharing it with a friend. I know I say this every week, but I don't know how to express how important it is that you are sharing it if you are enjoying it or leaving it a review. Just a one sentence review. Just give a little five stars and say, hey, I really like this show. It seriously changes the entire conversation and boosts how many people can even know that Wave 5 Minutes exists. It would mean the world to me. You can also tag the show on Twitter at Wave 5 Minutes or on Instagram at Wave 5 Minutes Podcast. I'm always posting updates there and I have some really cool announcements coming up in the next few weeks and I really think you should check out those social media channels immediately. Also, if you have an episode title or just want to send me a little story about how much you're enjoying the show, please reach out to me at my email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find those titles along with all of the links used in the research in the description below. If you haven't listened to this week's Tallahassee Tuesday, it is a brief synopsis of everything going on in Governor Ron DeSantis' life, specifically his new environmental policies. I would really recommend you check it out. There will be another Tallahassee Tuesday this upcoming Tuesday, and it will be the last one until August. There will be a two-month break for Tallahassee Tuesday. I'll get into that a little bit on the next Tallahassee Tuesday. Also, next Friday, the last episode of the month of May will be about Orange Bird, an amazing cartoon from Disney that a few decades ago was used to sell citrus. I am so, so excited for this one. I hope that you enjoy the episodes. I hope that you are sharing them with friends. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week. I will see you next Tuesday. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and drink more water. Have a great weekend. <laughs>